The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today, the messages are flooding in for Minister Eamon Ryan who's with us till six o'clock. Another one here says, you're dreaming if you think a bus corridor is going to sort out Galway's traffic. And one that says, Galway's a nightmare and a footbridge isn't going to help. Uh, no cycling lanes, no buses, nobody has a choice but to drive, is what people are saying about Galway. But here's another one saying, accusing you of stopping the N17 upgrade that has been planned for years, leaving Galway to cycle so disconnected with bad road. How is this possible when the south of the country has many motorways and the northwest forgotten again? We're engaged, we have a huge investment in the road pro- programme, both local roads and national roads. But there is a change and the change is to say we prioritise, firstly, we prioritise bypasses and we prioritise, so we bring life back into our towns. We have a real question, do we kind of, do we really revitalise and bring life and people living back into the centre of our towns? And if the answer to that is yes, which I think everyone agrees on, well, then you have to take out the true traffic and therefore the likes of Carrick and Shannon bypass, the likes of Listowel bypass, the likes of um, Athai. I could list as long as your arms and that's where we do want to invest. But also, what we've agreed is that 10% of the overall budget goes to walking and cycling and two to one ratio towards public transport versus roads because we've completely underinvested in public transport relative to roads over the last 30 to 40 years. And what does that mean then? Take that N17, take that area. Well, the strategic rail review will have to be published, as I said, this summer. But I expected to recommend, and I'll be supporting, the reopening of the Western Rail Corridor. And if I could just paint the picture of that in terms of what what it will bring. It's not just the section of rail track, which is still there by and large, but overgrown and and disused between uh, Athenry and Clare Morris. But actually, if you run right the way down and see that line running from Ballina or Westport, right down the West Coast, through Galway, through Limerick, and from Limerick down to Waterford and then Wexford, I see that as a single corridor, one which is completely underutilised. Like the line from Limerick Junction to Waterford, everyone will know, there's no one uses it. There's no traffic on it relative. If I was to build it new, if we were to build it new, it would probably cost us 15 billion euros. But it's sitting there underutilised. And in my mind, the strategic question is, do we see that line as a... And that line, if you remember, connects to Limerick Foynes Port, Shannon Foynes Port. It connects to Cork Port and Merino, connects to Waterford and connects, if we extend and reopen the line to Wexford, to Rosslare. You have four of our international deep water ports, all with rail lines to the quayside. And what I believe we can start doing is by investing in those sections of line and using the existing line, we can start switching trucks onto trains and start developing a low carbon solution for freight in this country, which we need with the lowest level of freight in Europe on on rails. And also then start to develop commuting and other services, intercity services. You mentioned Cork, kind of Galway or Limerick and and Cork connecting earlier on. By building up that Western Rail Corridor, seeing it as a spine right the way from the southeast up to the northwest, I think that's the sort of investment we can make. And in a world where, if if you look at other countries, that's where they're going. That's was with the French minister last week, Minister of Transport, and we were talking about this. And he said, yeah, they're making similar investment. Because everyone realises you need to change from this very high carbon, very heavy road dependent system towards a much more sustainable public transport system. And I think that investment in the likes of the rail network and in the likes of Metropolitan Rail in Cork and Limerick and Galway is the way forward. And that's what we need to spend on. I see the French are actually banning internal flights of less than two and a half hours as well to force people to use trains instead. I want to move to electricity though and electricity prices because we had Derek Cassidy from Bonkers.ie on at the start of the programme and a lot of questions came in from listeners on the back of that. And one thing he brought up was 
the price per unit of electricity. And some of it can be put down to this process called hedging. Mm. But he said, even before you get to that, our costs of electricity, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, were amongst the very highest in Europe. Why is electricity so expensive in Ireland? Because we rely firstly on gas for half of it, and gas is expensive and has been for over two and a half years now. The war in Russia, the war, the increase in prices started before the war. But also we have a very dispersed population. We have to get a grid and we have to run wires to every single house in the country. There's no other country in Europe has that dispersed system. But can I put the, maybe follow on the question to say, OK, how do we lower the price? And one thing is absolutely certain the advantage we have is in switching to wind and solar as a way of lowering the price and also having a much more secure as well as cleaner system. Last year, Matt, 85% of all the new power generation in the world was renewable. It's not, come back to, just as I was saying earlier, that the electric car is, is an inevitable now because it's a better car. Similarly, renewable electricity, in my mind, is the inevitable centre of the future of electricity systems because it's cheaper, it's more secure, it's cleaner, it has huge advantages. We also have an advantage that we happen to be one of the windiest places on the planet. And even in Ireland, solar power has a real role to play. And we're good at this. We have one of the highest levels of renewable pen penetration. The more we expand and roll out that, the best protection to our consumers. Why is it that we've had no new offshore wind farms since 2003? We built one of the first offshore wind farms in Europe in 2003. We were as you pioneers say. and now we've lost all completely we compared we stepped, to everyone We stepped else. back from it for various reasons. Firstly, we did switch to onshore, which was cheaper at that time. Offshore used to be much more expensive. It's since come down in price, as we've seen in the auction we, we carried out three weeks ago. But, but also, like it's true, Matt, after the financial crisis, we took our foot off the pedal, if you excuse that kind of motoring pun, in terms of we didn't invest in some of these new systems. And we need now to catch up and to change and reverse that. And we're doing that. We will build out at scale some seven gigawatts of wind power. And just to put, put that into context, uh, the, current, the, current, the country currently as we speak is probably using about five and a half gigawatts. So that's the scale of investment on offshore. And we need to do something similar in solar and in onshore wind as well. The real skill is in balancing that, is in using it in the middle of the night when the demand is low, is in building interconnection to France and Britain so that we can turn it into an export opportunity. And we are doing all this. We will deliver on the climate targets and energy. I'm absolutely convinced of it because it's a better system. It's lower cost. It's not subject to war. It's, but it's, a listener it's wants own. to know as well why it is that you're not using the excess budget surpluses to actually for the state to build out and own this offshore wind energy. We have so much building to do. I've just, I was actually just come from a meeting with Eric earlier on and we were looking at what the scale of what we have to do. We have so much to build. We have to build the grid to, to, uh, to use that electricity and to transport it. We have to build the charging infrastructure you mentioned earlier on. We have to build heat pumps in every home and switch the oil gas boilers to heat pumps. And I could, I could keep going on. We have a massive investment to make. It, a lot of it will be public funded and financed and led. And in the offshore sector, we have fundamentally changed the approach. And there was a lot of criticism of this a number of months ago from the some of the industry players saying you're switching away from a developer-led approach to a plan-led approach. And I'm not apologising for that because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, but we that doesn't mean you don't bring in international finance. It doesn't bring, you don't bring in international expertise. I think we there's huge community benefits we can gain from this, funds to go directly to communities. But more than anything else as well, Having that clean source of power supply allows us to go to other industries and just think in 10, 20, 30 years out, 
This country is a location where we will have secure, clean power. We will have water, which is going to become a scarce resource in a climate changing world than other places. We have a world class manufacturing capability and we have a stable government with an independent free press and judiciary. I think they're the main reasons people invest, are investing and will invest in this country. They're the foundations for, for any future economy. Well, Gorod and Balancolic in Cork wants to know why you're blocking the development of the Barry Row gas field to give us independence from fracked gas coming in from the United States. I wrote a letter to the developers last week and it was on the back of an assessment that was done by our department of whether they have the financial capabilities or met all the conditions that are set out in the licensing arrangements to be able to pro- progress to the next stage. And our assessment was they were not. And I wrote accordingly. Sorry, Larry Goodman is financially backing this idea at the barrier. Are you suggesting Larry Goodman doesn't have the money to do it? I, the, the, we did an assessment, including a lot of independent outsourced experts, to give a very independent and a rigorous view. We did not rush this. It wasn't done on a political basis. It was done on a purely rational assessment by the department of whether the project was able to meet its conditions as set out in the licence agreement. The view clearly and strong advice to me that was that it wasn't. And that part, that was, as I said, uh, the decision. Are you likely to face legal action, though, from the minority partners, Lansdowne, in relation to that, who say that the money is in place, they have a licence, or they are not a licence, but they actually had been granted the rights to drill before you banned new exploration. This is a potentially very valuable source of gas to replace what we're going to lose in the next few years from carbon. Potentially, potentially. There's always, uh, the, in the gas industry and the oil and gas exploration, you're never certain as to what the outcome is going to be. But put, putting that for aside, what I see the future is the same companies that have expertise in marine engineering, in exploration, in knowledge of the seabed and so on, that's the expertise we need in what we do know is going to deliver energy in the particularly the water waters to the south of Cork and Waterford, where we have, that'll be the next round of auctions for offshore wind. It'll be developing wind in the south and then the west. And I think the same capital and the same capability, which these companies have in abundance, needs to be used in that energy future rather than one we know is coming to an end, which we cannot afford as a world to keep exploring but we have and immediate fossil needs fuels. as well. And the wind energy is not really going to start kicking in from the offshore till about 2030. What about an LPG terminal in Kerry where you have American investors who want to do it very, very quickly? A lot of, lot of local support. So what's your position now on importing the LNG? My position is the same as it has always been, that, that we should, firstly, we have to, there are climate limits to what we do. And we have to be careful that we don't see a massive expansion in the use of gas to uh, to meet immediate needs, but actually leave us with stranded assets because we have to stop the burning of that gas within the next two to three decades at the latest. Uh, we also took a position, and as most parties in the Irish government system says, is we did not want imported frack gas in this country. We will look at and we'll have an energy security. It's not necessarily frack gas though. LNG, liquid nitrogen gas, does not necessarily have to no, come from frack sources. No, it doesn't. But but that's, I, I suppose, another issue that we've always been, been consistent on. We will look at, following, we did a report which we published last year, a CEPA report, which looked at the energy security issue. It recommended a non-commercial, more strategic approach. We will look at that in terms of publishing the final energy security review that will be in the coming weeks. Um, and we'll assess what the options are, but it will not be 
uh, commercial big expansion use of gas on it to to meet developers' needs, but not to meet our climate or our uh, security needs. Well, something else in relation. A lot of people are pointing out as well the closure of Bordnemona, so no longer peat being burnt, and yet wood chip has been imported from Brazil. What's the sense in importing wood chip? Surely that's environmentally damaging. I, I, I do think there's a real issue about the importation of wood chip for burning for power generation because two thirds of the heat is lost in a, in a going up the chimney. And that's what's been used in an Eden Dairy power station, according to one listener. It is, but there, there is a, the real storing board Nimona is that they are going from brown to green. They are a company that has been transformed. I think the board and the management and the workers have done an incredible job in difficult circumstances where they, you know, they were laying off workers in the peat extraction sector, but actually are hiring people now to start restoring bogs. They are making huge investments in this renewable future. They're actually delivering projects. They're a country with a real, in my mind, a, a clear vision for where the future is. And it's green, it's renewable, and they're at the very centre of it. They're, they have a proud tradition, particularly a connection to community in the Midlands. And I think using that tradition of working with communities, the Bordnemon is is thriving and will really grow. But would you not move to stop the biomass being imported? I think that the efficiencies of that will will play out in in its own way. And and uh, uh, the, as I said, the uh, the okay, well, most of the people power plants have shut down. Uh, but when as we develop this wider kind of network of storage and battery and other systems. I think inefficient systems will have less of a role. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.